Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. And this is Trav. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of finding out that the world you live in is just another simulation. I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, Toto. (laughs) This is a follow-up to our first uh, Super Science episode, where we talked about a lot of different things and ended up on... um, Basically, living without any apparent need for sustenance. We're now moving on to the sec uh, to another big category: precision instrumentality, which is where you know, things are. You're able to do things far beyond what is commonly considered to be cap- possible to do. You know, uh, you know, ca- count all the grains of sand on a beach in a nanosecond. Uh, be able to. Uh, uh, take a photograph and zoom in to uh, you know uh, one hundred thousand times and still be able to see clearly. I mean these kinds of things that you know you see actually a lot of times on television and and shows and things like that, but really isn't something that you normally would actually be able to do. But in a super science world, you might be able to do it because they might have some really really incredible algorithms. Arthur C. Clarke. They they had like a colony out like around Jupiter, and every so often the guy who was in charge of the colony, uh, he would go and go back to Earth and get a clone made of himself to replace him because he was aging. And uh, in that they, they talked about where, you know, you theoretically could take a really 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 big number, or a string of numbers. And encoded into a very simple string uh, as a mathematical formula. So it would be like something like, you know, 1.7 times 10 to the 32nd power, you know, minus uh, 538 times 3 to the 26th power. And once you did that calculation to bring it out, you'd have this enormous string of numbers, and those numbers could essentially be a, str- a stream of information that might be every book that had ever, ever been written. And I've used that actually in a number of uh, science fiction adventures where somebody actually had this number that they had to remember. They didn't know why. They'd been passing this number down, this calculation, this formula, through generations. And finally, at the end of it, they're like, oh, yeah, we need that, and we're now going to be able to reconstruct all human knowledge. Oh, okay, wow. Now, somebody has to take all human knowledge in a data set, coherent data set, and then resolve it down to that number. And then later on, take that number and un- you know, undecode it back up to where you have all those pictures and books and everything else it might be. Because I mean, if it's just a data stream, it could be pictures and graphics together in a for- in some kind of a format that's recognized. So it doesn't just have to be text, or just have to be pictures, or just have to be sound. It could be anything. It could be everything. 
So that was that was the point. Uh, and you know, and it, I was like saying, "Wow, it that would take a really really supercomputer." Just the kind of super science stuff we're talking about. Yep. But before we go there, we're going to talk about um, one of the other things, which is uh, where you go to a world uh, or another place on a world, and it looks exactly like another time, completely reconstructed. That could stand for a lot of virtual reality stories like right. The Matrix, where, yeah, where he said... Well, where you come from, you think it's 1999 when it's actually closer to 2199. And the robots decided to, in order to facilitate the humans' mental capacity and keep them going while they're being used as batteries, gave them the world at the end of the 20th century. Yet it was an entirely heuristic, computerized dreamscape essentially because the humans were all asleep but we're not talking about that we're talking about it being real we're saying is is that here's the taj mahal in every way every curve every grain of sand every chip every piece of graffiti okay that was in the original has been reconstructed uh you know kind of like what was supposed to have happened to the earth at the end of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy Ah, uh, yeah uh, dolphins took pity on us and gave us another Earth for us to be back on rather than just having it be destroyed. Oh, yeah, Slard of Artifast. Yeah, the character played by Bill Knight. Yep. And uh, they actually didn't do that, use Magrafia for that. They actually, uh, that was what they were going to do. They were reconstructing it back to the starting point uh, where they first, you know, we're going to have the matrix that be the human life would become on it. But I'm talking about at the end of the story, they said that out of a shadow reality, they basically another alternate, they basically grabbed an alternate earth from another reality and pulled it through. And it was just life, just like it was right before the Vogon showed up. Vogon. Yeah. And destroyed the planet. It was exactly the same. So everybody went on as if it never happened. Yeah. Yeah, so that was how the end of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy ended, and our hero, Arthur Dent, lived with his girlfriend in their nice little home in Surrey. I guess it was Surrey. Uh, yeah. And and the point was is that, you know, how, you know, they just, you know, it was a little easier the way they said it because you basically said, okay, we're just going to grab something that already exists and pull it in, and it's just going to replace you know, the, the other one. It's a shadow of the other one. Uh, but, you know, all the work's already been done because it's just an alternate version of reality. Here we're talking about literally from atom by atom building up a reality to match one, an existing one that happened either in the past or, or in the present. So you could theoretically make a planet that looked exactly like, you know, Jurassic Earth or any of the earlier epochs. Oh, okay, I get it. Uh, in the Palladium game Splicers, where you basically, the robots have taken over, and so they created a nanobot virus, so the humans that were fighting guerrilla warfare, they can no longer pick up even a fork, because it would grow tendrils and rip through their hand. So they had to create all new biotech. Well, what the robots did, sort of like farming humans to, you know, for their amusement, because this AI fractured into like seven or eight personalities. 
and one of them, in order to keep a small vestige of humanity, made something called retro villages. Uh huh. These humans lived as if they were in the medieval times. They had, or even the Dark Ages, because they had no metal, but they lived in various nationalities. Like you might have had a 10th century Japanese village, and 100 miles away, you might have had a 6th century European, and over here, a 10th century African. Right. And so they created them down, you know, the nanobots, you know, created everything perfectly to farm these humans, basically just to keep it for that that particular AI's personality's um, amusement. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's just what they did. You, If you happened to come upon this retro village, it would be like you'd walk back in time. It would look exact. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that'd probably be the example I would think when I when I read that. That's the first thing that came to mind. The the oldest version I think we have is uh, Star Trek um, Shore Leave, where all of a sudden they kept started running into, like, giant white rabbits and then people on, on armored horses and yeah. even ran into, you know, lovely young women who, as they discovered, were not actually women at all. Because once you, if you, in one case where they went and killed the guy that was the knight, they took off his helmet and they realized that what was inside was kind of like alive, but it was more like a a, a, a robotic human, more like a, a Terminator with flesh over top of a skeleton that was actually mechanistic inside. It was constructed for the purposes of of, of entertaining people, and it was based upon some ability to to read their minds, or I think they scanned their data banks before they came down. Oh my God, we're both forgetting probably the most recent example. Westworld. Yeah. Well, they they did do that, but though I wouldn't say it was that level that we're talking about here. But yes, I mean, they are able to make things that look very, very human. I don't know what's actually going on inside those bodies. I don't think they're actually alive, alive inside those bodies. In Westworld, no, they are they are androids. They're like synthetic androids. But in this, we're saying is that you you might run into uh, a, a village that was you know had Plains Indians in it, and they were going out to hunt buffalo. And you'd go out, and there would be a herd of buffalo, and the buffalo would eat grass, and they would poop, and they would fart, and they would do all the things that buffaloes do, because you know they weren't trying to you know there was nobody trying to improve the buffaloes. They were just making them as they were because they wanted that scene to be authentic. And, all, and, and the people involved either were totally buying into it or they didn't even know that they were in a simulation. Yeah. Right. So that, uh, and, and as you said, you could have these little enclaves within 100 miles of it. Every 100 miles you go, suddenly there's you know, a, a, a wall and you climb the wall and you find yourself in a South Sea Island village. Or something else, you know? so depending upon you know uh, whether they want to and do temperature control and and other types of things like that. Tritax game, um, hardwired hinterlands with Etowongo. Yep, Etowongo. Every one hundred miles, you have another and possibly completely different environment, and the people who live there are like totally buying into it. You know, they're like saying, okay, we're living in the 1920s in New York City. Yeah, okay, so what? how does one do that? And they figure it out and they live that way. So 
what keeps the city operating the way it is and it keeps it from changing into something else. That's the real magic going on there. Yeah. They 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 they, they glibly in the book say, yeah, every ten every twenty years they or every ten years they roll their clocks back ten years and start over as if it's that year. That seems a little little much. <laughs> but may but it's you know, if you if that's what you want, if that's what the makers want, if that's what the makers want, you know, then I guess everybody would be compliant. They would work into it a, some aspect of you're going to you're going to live at a place you want to live, and you want it to stay the same. Because really, I mean, when we grow older, we we our biggest what's our biggest problem, right? The world changes, and 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 inside we haven't. You know, here's a place where. No matter how much time goes by, it doesn't change, or it changes a little bit, and then you take it back, and then you go over it again and take it back. So it's actually, in a way, an ideal world because you get to pick the, uh, you know, whether you want to live in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 1800s, whatever. It's going to be that way because that's the way it's designed, and the people who live there want to live that way. So, but you have to have a lot, a lot of, you know, knowledge. You have to have a lot of precision to be able to create those things so that they behave properly, that, that the, uh, the pieces of metal have the right uh, mix of tin and, and iron or copper that would be true to that time. And how they get that information is hard to say. I mean, I mean, <laughs> under the most dire circumstances, you'd say, well, they took a world and they just basically dismantled it and, and stored all that information. And now they can reconstruct the world anytime they want to. But it's kind of scary if you think about the people. The this doesn't quite looks like another time, but the society... After a while, shaped that way, the River World series by Philip Jose Farmer, uh -huh. where you had within a certain mile area along the River World, it would be like, oh God, 95% 20th century African Americans. Then you'd have another, let's see, we said 95, 3% Chinese from the 6th century. And 2% of just a smattering everywhere else. Uh -huh. Well, the majority of that society in that particular area would be living as late 20th century African-Americans. So you would try to live that same way, create that same society, despite it being on the river valley and all that. So, yeah, it would be kind of like that. And after a while, they started building with the uh, what the um, the available materials villages and whatnot and if it were of course from a, a previous time period it would look very much like the world that they came from right because that was the world they a lot of them grew up in so yeah they're gonna try they're gonna try to reconstruct it yeah if you were came from like oh 16th century japan you'd be seeing along this stretch of the river valley a lot of pagodas and you know the oyabun's castle and you know, yeah so yeah, that that another time the looks like another time. Yeah, the River World series just sort of rang a bell there as far as somehow how some of the civilization shaped as time went on on that River World. Again, going back to Star Trek, uh, they had the one uh, world that was all like a, a gangster world. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and they basically, from a single book, they reconstructed all the technology, uh, including like how cars looked, how fashion looked, you know, uh, how gangs supposedly operated. You know, it was, you know, Star Trek is a bad example because it's really more of a morality play than it's really science fiction. Uh, but it, even so, is at least it was a situation where you could go to, you could be going along, and all of a sudden you found yourself, you know, on a world that's just like that. You're like, why is this world like that? Well, maybe there's a higher intelligence somewhere with a lot of this really powerful instrumentality, and it just they just decided that, well, you know, humans. Uh, we're we're just now getting the information from uh, from Earth because it's you know traveling the speed of light, and this seems to be the what the kind of world they like. So we'll just reconstruct it for them. So when they arrive here, they'll have a place they like. And the humans get there, and they don't quite understand why everything's like a, a you know a nineteen fifties uh, <laughs> you know because it's 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 twenty thirty you know light years away from. Uh, from Earth, and they're like, "Well, okay, so what? You know, is there some kind of a, a you know, a Gaia matrix on this world that reconstructs itself based upon radio and and and, and uh, television broadcast that's received just now? Maybe it is. Maybe that's what's going on. No, no, the term from Galaxy Quest, the historical documents. Historical documents, absolutely. You betcha." Moving on to tools that are alive and pad or fly beside you. Now, I think this is something that really hasn't been done very, really well in science fiction and fantasy in either books or movies or anything. Yeah, because, I mean, you had oh, early, the early days of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. when Fitz had his drones but he was controlling them from his data pad. They were still under his command. The only thing that comes to mind as far as tools that were alive and they floated beside you, uh, weren't there parts of the Termellern dock box in Fringeworthy that sort of hovered over as you examine the patient? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. That's the only example I would... Because you know it was an AI that ran the box, so... Right, but like for example, you know, for example, um, what you don't see very often is is that you don't see like there's a there's a creature there that's with you, and let's say you're an electrical engineer, and the creature basically tell not only tells you whenever there's abnormal radiation, but also can tell you you know what's the Gauss level, or it can basically go over and you know touch a a, a circuit, and it can tell you uh, you know what's you know, what's the voltage, you know, what kind of information is coming through here, whether this circuit's hot or it isn't hot, just by, you know, special sensors that are in its own body. Okay, it's a, a tool that actually does, you know, or, you know, uh, you you need to go, uh, you're a, uh, um, a carpenter, okay, and this thing that looks like a bear just goes over and just takes a nail and just, just pounds it into the board for you. Okay, I I have an idea based on my homebrew world of Quadria. Okay. It was basically sort of Termellern, but they were on all fours. I mean, they could stand if they wanted to, but they were sentient. They were still synthetic, 
but they felt real and they could also be worn like armor. In other words, with permission, they would sort of, well, absorb onto you and just sort of flow over you and you ended up riding and at times if you wanted to moving it around of course like a full-out run it would say i'm taking over and then just you know run like 80 miles an hour but yeah that other than that if you wanted to walk and have it beside you mm -hmm. it would walk and it would look like well probably about the size of a saber-toothed tiger maybe bigger see we seem to see these things as the way they're represented is either as companions who are there primarily to be companions and maybe like, you know, uh, inform um, information sources like, you know, hey, tell me about this. And it says, oh, that's a so-and-so, you know, uh, uh, car and it's got these parts and things like that. Basically a walking encyclopedia that stands next to you. Okay. Or it's a, it's a companion like, oh, I'm your buddy. I hang around with you and stuff like that. Okay, but rarely th does it actually seem to be purpose built to provide, you know, the the plumber's friend or whatever. Does it, you know, d it, it doesn't like spit, you know, onto uh, something and that becomes an epoxy, you know, that you can then use to put things together. I mean, you see what I'm saying? Is it not? It's not really not. You don't see purpose built like this very often. Um, or, or at all. The, as a matter of fact, the closest thing I can see to it, it was in the television show Third Rock from the Sun, where they put the uh, interstellar communicator inside the uh, the brother's head. So, er so every once in a while, when a message came through, he'd like go into this weird position, yeah, and his mouth would drop open, and then <laughs> he'd become the radio. Yeah, and they would talk to it, and then afterwards it. You know, everything would could kind of conjunct back, and and he'd be fine. Okay, the the only uh, the only other example was was a really terrible example, uh, which was uh, which was in South Park, where like an entire uplink came out of one of the kid, one of the little boy's butts. It was like in the first season. It's like he. Oh, was that the one with the radio where Cartman had the radio dish? Yes. Yeah, yeah, guys, it's radio. It's not, it like this on my butt. Yeah, okay, yeah, I remember that, yeah. It grossed me out every time I saw it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. But I'm saying is that that sort of thing where all of a sudden, you know, stuff just comes out of this thing that otherwise doesn't look like it would be doing that, you know? Yeah, the, the, the Bearcat power armors that I had, I mean, they were made for combat, so, I mean, they could fight alongside you, or if they decided, well, you know what, you're a little too squishy, merge and then you were riding inside you had you know the muscle and fur armor of it and you could the claws and the teeth and the senses and so yeah yeah i, I kind of had something like that it was kind of cute mm -hmm. uh pixie like using it and the others were they caught on after a while like okay yeah i see what they're doing here and so yeah they were they accepted a subservient role, but I mean, they were as smart as any of the players. Right. And then when you weren't using them, they had their own things that they were doing. It wasn't like a robot that would just go, you know, uh, I'm not doing anything, so I'm just going to go into low power mode and would just shut down like three sepia would do, uh, you know, in the first episode four. No, it, it's, they, they had other stuff that they were doing. They had their own civilization, their own culture, you know, they might you know, have their own personal interests, but whenever you needed them, yeah, they were right there because, you know, they were created to be, you know, your 
not companion, but your um, helpmate. And so, you know, they, you know, and they had to eat or, you know, some form of sustenance taking in or whatever. So uh, they, they, they were certain things that were involved in that as well. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, they did do in, there was one anime I saw that I thought that they kind of was kind of interesting with that. And it was a uh, one called, um, uh, but anyways, and so this guy, he was a blacksmith. He, he, uh, he, he was a sword maker actually. And he had this girl who was kind of like a very, you know, little wafy, cute little girl thing, you know, treated him kind of like a younger sister and all. And you find out at the end of it that she's actually what they call a demon, you know, because she's not actually human. Uh, and they're like, you know, and everybody's friends, uh, you know, all, uh, friends with it. And they're like, well, what's the, what's the deal? Why do the, why is people have a problem with this? And what, and, and he says, well, she, he says, because she has enormous amounts of power. So at one point they have to make a really powerful, uh, magical sword. And he creates this, you know, big circle with all the different symbols on it like that. And she comes in and she touches some of those circles and her eyes glow and she starts chanting and stuff. And all this power comes into the circle, which she can then use to enchant the item. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think it's called uh, sacred blacksmith. Here, here's somebody who, otherwise, she's just this cute little, you know, younger sister type girl who wants to like, you know, cook meals and and uh, you know be you know be friends with the blacksmith and and uh, go out on uh, uh, on shopping trips with other girls and and things like that. And just you know, be a friend to everybody. But then when he needs her, when he needs to to do this, then she's there and she like really transforms, you know, because that's what she's really made for. It wasn't to the end that you had any idea, you know, because he always kept her hidden. He would never tell anybody that she was there. Anytime somebody, you know, he said, don't talk about her. You know, why not? Well, she, you know, she's very shy and, and, and people, and I'm not supposed to have anybody here with me. And they're all like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. You know, it's, you're taking care of this, this little girl and, and uh, you know, we don't want to cause trouble. And, but later on, they find out that the church, you know, sees her as a demon and would destroy her. And which would only be bad because she's a nice person, you know? but also because he would lose this enormous resource that he has in her to make these really powerful magic items, which he then, by the way, gives to the royals and the very people that want to kill her. <laughs> so it's, it's very ironic in that sense. With tools and aids and assistance that usually if, if they're like this and they're alive and they move around, they're still going to take a subservient role because for one reason or another, they, it, it seems to be a convention of this particular thing. And in anime, I, obviously they would do that and they would put it in the form of a young girl, you know, some preteen or teenage girl. Um, or they would do it like a pet, like the case with my bear cat power armors. But yeah, I, I would I don't see it where usually they would treat them as I mean there might be an affection for them after a while like Luke had for three PO and R two, but yeah I I still see that in that in that particular convention they're always seen as a well loved yet still subservient being presence 
Yeah. I mean, the, the elves, you know, uh, in um, Harry Potter could very well be considered like this because they have all this, they have more power in, in a lot of regards than the humans do. But they're totally subservient. They're totally buying into the whole, I got to, you know, I got to follow this family until somebody gives me a piece of clothing. You know, there are rules that they apparently have to follow that humans don't have to follow. And whether this was like a bad deal that happened millennia ago and they're still stuck with it or uh, or not, I mean, you know, I always, I always wonder about that. Like, how did this ever actually happen that the that the elves ended up with such a bad deal? Or is it a, such a bad deal? Yeah, I say I'm not a Harry Potter fan, so I'm not sure of the exact... I just know of the, the pop culture reference of Dobby as a free elf. Yeah, that... that yeah. Right, right. Well, Do- I mean, there there's these little, you know, um, skinny little humanoids with big heads and big noses, and they basically do all the work. And they use magic, usually with more uh, skill and adept than humans can, you know. Uh, and so that's all. I always thought it was weird that 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 you didn't ever. I mean, you literally didn't run into hardly any elves that were free. That's why Dobby would say, "I'm a free elf," because it was so unusual that such a thing would be. And you know. But this would, but this still kind of falls into what we're talking about, where you have something that could, you know, cast your magic for you, or it could aid you in the casting of your magic, or do something. Uh, kind of like uh, what is the D and D path a homunculus? Yeah, where the wizard creates it, and it's like maybe two feet tall, and it's got wings and like a big head, and it yeah kind of helps out. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, uh, and, and yeah, that's what they look like, you know. And of course, they can wear clothing, and uh, and and they're not uh, they're not always. Uh, I was gonna say they're 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 not all like that. But then I said, no, no, wait a second, because the one place where there was a person who owned a bar, he wasn't a he wasn't a an uh, an elf. He was a goblin. So the goblins apparently, you know, they can do whatever they want. They're not they're not under that that. Um, Compulsion, but like all the food is prepared by uh, at at Hogwarts by elves on these gigantic tables, and then what they do is they cast some kind of spell, and all the food basically transfers from those tables up to the tables in the Great Hall, which is why suddenly it all appears. You know, when he says, "Let's have the feast begin," and and these empty tables suddenly are filled with food. The food actually was downstairs. Okay. Yeah, he didn't actually conjure the food out of nothing. It was it was still down. You know, it, it, it's 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 not a complete violation of the laws of, of physics and and energy conservation and stuff. Okay. You know, there's somehow you still have to get that food there. Someone apparently still has to grow the food. They may use magic to prepare it. They may use magic to transfer it to where they want it to be. But it's still not just you know you're not going poof. There's a jelly donut. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish there would be more of that because, uh, especially purpose-built uh, creatures that do like one thing and that's all they do, because that's what they were built for. And you know, when people ask questions like, "Well, why don't you do other things?" It's like, "Why would I do that? That's not what I was made for." <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't like me? Maybe you should get somebody else because you know that's what I do and I do it very well. And you know, respect. 
I I slave in this hot wizard's laboratory, and this is the thanks I get. Yeah, yeah. I do all this for you, and you, yeah, right. and, you and you and you and all and all you could do is say I don't have a very good singing voice. <laughs> right? I mean, you know how terrible you are. <laughs> <laughs> as it as it as it runs off sobbing, going, I'm going home to mother. Yes. <laughs> Water her for me, you say as she goes as it goes running off. <laughs> All right. So, but like I'd like to see more of that in games because uh, especially yeah. especially the ones that have things like super science. You know, I mean, obviously in, in FTL twenty four forty eight, the Crowvin should have tons of these things. Oh God! Yes. I mean, they bioengineered themselves in the weird exotic shapes. They use all their their devices should all be, you know, in yeah. some way mechanical or living or animated in some way, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the Krelvin, they 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 use biotech. You know, they'll mutate themselves just for S and G. You know, it's like. I want wings today. I want a prehensile tail tomorrow. I want green eyes that can see in the ultraviolet on, on Tuesday. Yeah, we'll we'll pencil that in. You know. Right. So yeah, all of all of their devices would be biotech. They would ha- grow animals that specifically do things. They would have, you know, they mutate anything to to suit their needs, and they could probably do it in the matter of hours. Right. I mean, you know, the the horrible. E- you know transformations you see in the movie The Thing in a in a, a futuristic setting that might actually be something actually behaving properly. I mean that might be the way it's supposed to look. I mean it looks like a normal person, and then when you need it, you know tendrils start coming out of various places, yeah. and may you know, and maybe they take their head off and they put it over and they grab another head and they stick it on. <laughs> this is this is this has got better eyes or it's got you know bigger. You know, uh, you know, uh, a better singing voice, as I just mentioned. <laughs> oh, what was the one creature that was in Fringe where the D20? The Kellor? They were kind of malleable like that. What? Oh, this one's a feeding Kellor, and this one does this. And they just like, they were like the stick figure beings that would just snap parts on and off as needed. Okay. Yeah. So that I'm saying that that's what you would expect for these kinds of purpose-built things that they they'd be like if I need a part I just go and attach another biological part but I'm still a biological creature and if you don't have it if you don't need me to do anything then I'll go and do things that I want to do of course the the ultimate one right cat bus oh that sounds familiar I'm, I can't from uh, my neighbor Totoro the anime. Yeah, I've heard of it. I never saw it, but I I do the the name cat bus does sound familiar. Yeah. It's a it's a bus, but it's actually a cat. So you got this cat head on one end, it's got wheels, it's got a tail on the other end, it's got windows and and a space in the middle. Somewhere in there's gotta be its digestive system. Probably Probably in the floor, I would hope. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just saying. So it, you know, it's and it's a cat bus, and it pulls up to you, and meow, it opens the door, and you go in, and you tell it where you want to go, and it rolls over, and you know, uh, I mean, it rolls as it goes over. It could, it's a cat bus. It could actually roll over intentionally, which would be probably a a bit of a problem for the people inside. Well, yeah. <laughs> 
But uh, if you can imagine a bus acting like a cat. No, because then then it would sit there and just run after it would it would be driving uh, very fast towards stoplights. You know, the red dot. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Or or you know, go to uh, see like a Joanne Fabrics a yarn store, and all of a sudden it just swerves toward it. You know, because they know there's balls of yarn there. Yeah. No cat bus, bad idea. <laughs> Right, but you know that's that's a, um, a a clear example of where something was something is actually alive. It's supposed it's it, it serves a purpose that's has, you know, I mean it's intentionally made to look like a bus in the shape of a bus. It's not like you know a uh, uh, battle cat with like a whole bunch of you know putting a, a whole thing on the back like like elephants where they had you know seats. You know, and they put it on the back, and they had a whole like canopy and all that stuff. No, no, they've reconstructed the inside of this cat. First of all, making it giant-sized, and they reconstruct the inside of the cat so it would serve the needs of humans and other type creatures inside of itself. So, yeah. And you talking about the elephant with the canopy on it? I'm now reminded of uh, Return of the King. That still only counts as one. <laughs> right. That's right. Still counts as one. <laughs> but, you know, I always, in some ways, felt that the uh, in Pinocchio, the, the whale that had literally a, like an entire civilization going on inside its belly. Yeah. That's that's a possibility. Kind of, yeah. And they, they kinda, I mean, it didn't seem to be intentional, but it still was happening. Right. Well, it kind of, well, um, oh, God, I can't believe I forgot this. Moya. Yes. Moya is a is 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 a, a gigantic version of what we're talking about. Yeah, basically they grow and adapt in accordance of their crew. That's why no two leviathans were alike. And in um, Crichton Kicks, when Sokozu joined the cast, she was supposedly a, a leviathan expert. But Crichton had a reminder: um, leviathans grow to accommodate their crew. You may think that there's a hatch on that side of the, of you know, on Hammond's side. It's not there. They got rid of that hatch, you know. So, yeah, the, and of course the pilots, even though they're a separate race, they learn to bond with the Leviathans and guide and pilot them. And that was how the pilots, who were rather big and bulky, that's how they got off their world and got to see the galaxy, was grafting, merging with a Leviathan. Mm-hmm. And but yeah, they they produced food. They produced, you know, the waste products were used for energy, and it had its own systems. There was, you know, that blue bilge and the bats that were living inside it, and that was all part of the what's the word symbiotic. Yeah, it it was, and because it was producing stuff that it didn't need yeah. for itself. But by producing it for somebody else who would then guide it, it took it places it would never have gone. Yeah. So it it, it needed a, a, a Leviathan needs a crew. Yeah. I mean, they can flit around on their own. They don't even need a pilot. But I mean, they've accepted the pilot race as, okay, I like these guys. And then in turn, we'll, you know, if we have a crew, we'll work with them. But still... There were times when Moya had her own agendas. Hell, there were times when Moya and Pilot would disagree. And it would result because of Moya's, you know, her hormones and all that, and her adrenaline would be all 
jacked out of shape pilot who was neurotic enough already was like all of a sudden just very, very agitated because all of the hormones flowing through Moya. Mm -hmm. And if they had a fight, yeah, they'd try to have, they'd have to calm pilot down because he'd start getting into his, his massively multi-syllabic language and they'd have to tell him to slow down. You're, you need to calm down. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I can't believe I forgot Moya. Yeah. But yeah, that would be, that is a good example. And Leviathans are, as far as I know, sentient. Right. They have a recognition of self. It's just they can only talk, communicate their desires, either through the DRDs, which they grew, or through the pilot monitoring it. Right. Because the pilot didn't didn't control the Leviathan. It worked in concert. It's like, okay, well, we need to get rid of this problem. Let's say we need to jettison this craft that landed here and it's starting to leak fuel. The pilot would just, you know, hit the, the hangar bay door release and it would suck it out into space. Right. Or like in the one episode, uh, early season three, where the lady was grafted to the hull plating and Crichton just yelled, blow that out into space. Pilot maniacally cackling hits the, 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 the bulkhead release plate and this this woman who was like a zealot and was trying to blow just gets shot out into space. But the important part, pilot was cackling. He did it with glee. <laughs> so yeah, Moya. Yeah, there were times that Moya would, you know, do things to protect her son Talon, mm-hmm. which the peacekeepers made like a gunship Leviathan hybrid. Right. So Talon had this cannon. And he had to, you know, Moy had to calm him down and the crew had to go on town and talk to him. And so, yeah, the Talon was young, but he was still sentient. And so he had to learn through Crace and Aaron and Crichton and all the others. And, and Talon also could adapt. He grew a den that Stark could have been the pilot in that. And even merged with Stark for a while. There's, you know, Paul Goddard, you know, done up and he's like hanging and he's got these wires that look like, you know, these cords are like phone cables look like that were fused into him and lifting him up about 10 feet in the air mm-hmm. because um, Talon wanted Stark to, to take over. And they were all biomechanical, techno-organic, so... Yeah, it felt like metal, but they were living beings. And they had their own purposes, their own agendas. They would work with others. But if they still had um, senses of self-preservation and awareness of their self. Right, they had their own agendas. Yeah, but they were a race. Yeah. They were sentient. They, They, as I said, they had... They were just as intelligent, if not more so, and certainly more long-lived than the people they ferried around. Right. I mean, if if all other races were to suddenly be to, to die out, they would be diminished, but they wouldn't they wouldn't be purposeless. Well, yeah, they would still want to explore on their own and everything. Yeah, they would want you know the galaxy. Yeah, uh, our our inter- our interactions with them is beneficial to both. You know, and they may have originally been designed to be, you know, uh, uh, an adjunct to human or or whatever race you want to call, you know, uh, expansion. 
but uh, ultimately they, uh, you know, they they were their own creatures. Yeah, yeah. Something that uh, uh, they they've never done at all in in Fringery with the Meller. Yeah, they just made them as like what um, diplomats and spies in a way. Yeah, well, I mean, they're basically infiltration agents, and their their goal is to guide, you know, uh, humanity uh, in whatever form it takes to finally joining up to the Commonwealth. But essentially, it's like they, it's they're they're rarely ever depicted as having their own personal interests. Well, yeah, they were kind of made to be subservient. The Termellern kind of, and that's why the Kegak, quote unquote, freed them. Because it saw that they were fellow, fellow servant servitor races of the Termellern, and they were bred for subservience. And the Kegak didn't like it because it's like, wait a minute, we did all this, we rose ourselves up, and we were the product of a lab grant that a Termellern got. So we had to sit there and practically kill ourselves. What they they were about to have their third or fourth world war. And they decided not to have it, and that's when the Miller came up and said, "Hi, we'd like you to join." Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah, it, it, it was. It's a similar story of of long suffering of, of all races that rise up, you know, to finally become something that can join the Commonwealth, you know, and but to find out that you know that all the suffering that you went through, all the things that you believed were were really were always a lie. And and the people kept the truth from you, knowing that you were living a lie. You know, I can see where people get really mad at that. Well, yeah, and then they they unlocked, you know, with that bioengineered virus, they unlocked, you know, a potential that. Well, I wouldn't say they unlocked a potential that they certain they they altered the Melor definitely, and they gave them that ability to use free will, and unfortunately also dumped a buttload of psychoses into their into the matrix um but yeah the mellow that was a, that's another example of yeah they're tools and they're alive and they they walk alongside but they were bred specifically to be subservient to the termellard and they're they had the one function get worlds into the commonwealth and guide them right this is bruce sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there so go explore them and this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.